here with us this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm one of the pastors here at Valley Life. And um, I'm going to encourage you this morning. Now, some of you may have brought your own Bibles. That's great if you want to use those or use one that is under your seat. But today may be a great day for you to use the Bible app. And here's why. Today, this morning, I'm actually going to cover quite a few different Scripture passages, and I'm going to do them quickly. So there's not going to be a lot of time uh, to flip from one uh, book to the next. And so they're all laid out for you in the Bible app. If you want to follow along there, that may make it a little easier. Um, So while you're doing that, I just have a question for you. This is one of those questions that you are supposed to respond uh, just by raising your hand. How many of you are completely done with Christmas shopping already? Okay, two, three. So the rest of you procrastinators can look around and now know who to be jealous and angry at. Um, Now, I'm not actually quite done, which is a little unusual. Uh, Usually by December 1st, I am completely done with Christmas shopping. Um, I love Christmas. I love it for so many reasons. It's my favorite holiday. Uh, And just one of the reasons that I love Christmas is I love buying and giving gifts um, to my family, particularly to my kids. Um, I actually keep a spreadsheet on my computer all year, uh, keeping track of gift ideas. I also have another copy on my phone so that when we're just in a store, we're out on a hike, and I just think of like, oh, this is something they would love. This is something they need. I put it on my list. And by October, most years, I'm, it's, it's go time. And we're buying stuff. Of course, I don't go to any stores. It's all on Amazon mostly. But um, I'm getting it done. Now, I'm a little behind this year. Most of our shopping is done. Not quite all of it. Um, but I love Christmas. My wife does too. We get excited about thinking and planning ahead for the gifts and um, how to make it a great experience for the family. Um, I don't know how you are. I don't know if you uh, have this sense of anxious waiting for Christmas like I do. I'm sure growing up you probably experienced it. Like just that, that anxious waiting for what could be under the tree. Like what could be behind the wrapping? Uh, Just waiting and anticipation for what that uh, might be like. Or if we're honest, some of us may have experienced anxiety as we approach Christmas and the holiday season because there were some things that weren't so great. And we knew there were people that we were going to have to see that reminded us of pain or past experiences but so much about the holidays, we, we have this anxious waiting, building for it. Mostly good, but sometimes not so much. Um, last week, Dustin opened us up in our new series, The, Gri- the Gifts of Christmas. And uh, as we're going to talk about another one this morning, what I want to do is I kind of want to set the stage uh, for Christmas in the first century. For the first Christmas. So often when we think about Christmas and the birth of Jesus, we do so from our own perspective and what the birth of Jesus means for us. Now, that's appropriate, as we should, but I want to back up a little bit to what the feeling was like as Jesus was being born. And so to do that, I just want to look at two Old Testament passages that will just serve as an example of the mindset 
of some of the people in the first century and what made Christmas something that they were anxiously waiting for too. Even though they couldn't quite put all the details and a name and a face to what it was going to look like, they knew something was coming. So we're going to jump way back before the first Christmas and look at a passage in Exodus chapter 34. And just to give some context, the people of Israel, God's people, who he had just freed out of slavery in Egypt, had just committed some pretty terrible sins. They had just violated some major rules that God had just laid out for them to not do. And immediately after telling them what to do and what not to do, they broke them. And so as God is restoring that relationship with his people after they messed it up, This is what takes place in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, that would be Moses, the leader of the people at the time, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So after the people had messed up pretty bad, after they had fractured their relationship with God, God comes and proclaims that He is a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in love, And that He offered forgiveness for those who mess up. Which in that moment is exactly what the people needed to hear. But then He makes this additional proclamation. But He will not clear the guilty. That there will be consequences for sin. And sometimes those consequences will even outlast the people who committed the sin. And so there's this tension created that, that we serve and we know and we cherish this loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving God, but one who also says guilt can't be overlooked. So there's this tension about how does this work in our lives. And they not only experienced it on a corporate level as a nation, because as a nation they had sinned, God is making this declaration to all the people, but they also wrestled with it on an individual level. Psalm 130 is a great example of how how someone wrestles with this on a personal, individual level. And much of the Psalms are songs and prayers that reflect a condition of the heart. Sometimes they're sung individually. Sometimes they're sung as a group. But Psalm 130 will give us some perspective. Here's what the writer of this psalm says. Out of the depths I cry to You, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let Your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If You, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with You there is forgiveness that You may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there 
there is steadfast love and with him plentiful redemption. Oh, I love that phrase. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So go back to verse 4 and 5 and we see this tension that not only applies to a group but to an individual. Right? Verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should keep account of our sins and our failures and my mistakes, who could stand before you? But with you there is forgiveness. This reminding of the character of the God we serve. Now, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? These aren't your usual Christmas messages uh, or, or your usual verses that you would incorporate into a Christmas message. Well, in verse 5 and 8, we see that connection. I wait for the Lord. As the psalmist is describing their position, right? as they're begging God for mercy, as they're reminding themselves that, that our sins counted against us mean that we can't stand before God, yet we serve a God of forgiveness. And then he says this, I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord to come and do something on my behalf that I can't do. And then reminding himself in verse 8, and he, God, will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so in the first century, as we enter upon the scene of the first Christmas, what we find is a group of people, individually and collectively, who recognize this tension. That we serve a loving, gracious, merciful God who forgives, yet one who doesn't overlook the guilty. Of our great personal need for the Lord to forgive us, and this waiting for God to do something. That we will wait on the Lord to do something. That we know one day He will redeem His people. And as we turn to the New Testament and open up at the beginning of the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, we see people who are experiencing the birth of Jesus use this exact same kind of language. One example is in Luke chapter 1. Now, this is a long passage, and I'm not going to put the whole thing on the screen because it would require a bunch of slides. If you have the Bible app, and, uh, app open, it's all there uh, in front of you. But I'm going to put just two of the verses that I'm going to read on the screen just to highlight this same theme that we see appear in the birth of Jesus. And here, a man by the name of Zechariah is celebrating the coming of Jesus and he's prophesying about what it's going to mean for his people and the world. He opens up with verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. Do you see this same kind of language that we just saw in Psalm 30? And now Zechariah is saying, and it has happened. We have waited on the Lord and He has shown up. We knew He was going to redeem His people and now He's come to redeem them. And He's going to go on. Not all of this will be on the screen. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in his holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, the context of here is, is he's talking about Zechariah's own son, John the Baptist, that he's preparing the way for Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so we see this language being incorporated as, as the birth of Jesus is being announced. Look at what the angel says to Joseph when the announcement is made to him that Mary is going to bear a son. Matthew 1 verse 20. But as he considered these things, that would be Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in one of maybe the most classic texts uh, in the New Testament, one of the most well-known and famous texts in the New Testament, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the first and the greatest and the ultimate Christmas gift. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? The birth and the giving of Jesus. And with that gift, you and I are also given the opportunity to receive the gift of forgiveness. And so in this series, The Gifts of Christmas, we're looking at the gifts that God gives to us and how those things are tied into the giving of Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about forgiveness. That Jesus came to offer forgiveness, to, to relieve that tension that we feel, that we know we're guilty, we know we serve a loving and forgiving God. But how do those things come together? And as Jesus stated about his own coming and his own purpose, the night before he would die, celebrating that final supper with his disciples, in what we remember when we take communion, says this in verse 27 of Matthew 26, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was born to die. He was born to die for you and I. So that by His spilled blood, we could be forgiven. We could be forgiven for all of our sins. But not only did Jesus come to die, in his coming he also taught. 
And here's what I want to do. Now, I'm going to go through about six or seven verses quickly, and they're not going to be on the screen for you. But I'm going to go through them quickly and just kind of get a summary of some of the things that Jesus taught about forgiveness. And then we'll land the plane with just looking at one of those together. Mark 11, 20, uh, verse 5. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Matthew 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Later on in that same sermon, Jesus said in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Not long after that, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And this is how he taught them to pray. Pray then like this in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus provides some commentary on only one line of that prayer. In verse 14, For if you forgive their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Luke chapter 17, Jesus taught this. He said, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And then the disciples had a response to that command, much like many of us would. It says immediately then, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Okay, Lord, if you're telling me when someone sins against me and they repent, I have to forgive them. And if they do it seven times in one day, I have to forgive them seven times. The disciples' response was, Lord, you're going to have to increase my faith. I don't know if I can do that. And so as they're processing, okay, what does it mean to forgive like that? The disciples at one point asked, and this is where we're going to really focus in on in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven, but 77 times. Now here, um, to be clear, um, this isn't a math problem. Um, actually, in the Greek, there's a little uncertainty about whether uh, Jesus says 77 times or 70 times 7 just because of the way the Greek language works. But it doesn't really matter because the point isn't do you forgive 77 or 490? Jesus' point here is that there shouldn't be a limit and if you're counting, then you're not really forgiving. If you're still keeping track, then you're not really forgiving, are you? Now, this is hard. So Jesus is going to tell a story to help illustrate it. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you're looking at your Bible or the Bible app, I want you to resist the temptation to read the rest of the story. Okay? Just wait. I don't want you to look at it. 
because I want to read it for you. Now, here's why, okay? These stories that we often call parables, okay, um, it's good for us to look at them and analyze them and study them. But Jesus really intended them to be heard and experienced. So I just want you to hear it. Now, some of you are going to cheat because you've already heard the story, so you already know where it's going, but let's at least pretend like we don't. And so after telling the disciples, no, it's not about seven times, you're missing the point. The point is don't keep track. Don't keep score. So then he tells them the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant, and just stop. Okay, if you, were, if you were making up this story and you wanted to communicate about a gracious king, how would you finish that? Right? There's this guy who owes a lot of money who couldn't pay it. The king ordered him uh, to be sold, which was a practice in the Roman Empire. We'll talk about it in a minute. To pay off the debt and the worker begged, please don't do it. I promise I'll pay you every penny I owe. And this gracious king had pity on him and said, what? You and I would think it would be incredibly gracious to say, fine, I'll give you an opportunity to pay your debt. Fine, if you promise to work hard and you make monthly installments and you're not late, I'll let you pay it off. That would show pity. That would be gracious of the king to allow that. But this is how the, Jesus told the story. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. And he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me give you just a few factoids of information about this that we might miss. First of all, um, it was a really common practice in the Roman Empire to have something called debtor's prison. Um, we're unfamiliar with that because it's illegal in the United States. There's a lot of places in the world that it's not illegal today. Um, but that you, if you had a debt you could not pay, could be sold into servanthood or slavery or into jail until the debt that you owed was paid back in full. So that was the practice that the servant was begging the king not to do. 
Now let me give you some perspective on this story. This man owed 10,000 talents. So just to give you perspective, a talent um, was basically a year's worth of wages. So if you calculate that out to the average salary today, it's roughly equivalent, 10,000 of these, to about $3.5 billion, okay? Now, there's a couple options here that people have tried to figure out. Um, The reality is no king would or probably even could actually loan out that kind of money. So there's two options. One is that this servant of his, maybe some kind of CFO of the, the country, of the kingdom, that this man had not so much taken a personal loan out as much as he had mismanaged kingdom funds and put the entire economy of the nation in peril. So perhaps it was how he was stewarding the kingdom resources. That could be true. Or what's probably more accurate is that Jesus is trying to communicate an infinite number. In Rome, a talent was the single largest piece of denomination that the Roman Empire had. 10,000 is the largest uh, word, numerical word in the Greek language. And so if you wanted to talk about more than 10,000 in the Greek language, you had to use uh, multiplication in your sentence. They had 10,000 was as big as the word went. Um, English is similar, though different. I mean, we got a lot. We got million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, whatever comes after that. I looked it up in the dictionary, and actually, the English language stops with the number centillion. I don't even know how much that is, but that's the biggest the English language goes. So we recognize that whatever centillion is, that's not actually the largest number possible, because all you got to do is centillion plus one, right? But that's just as far as the English language goes. So we have bigger numbers in our language, but it works the same as Greek. It stopped at 10,000. So what Jesus was doing is taking the largest number and the largest piece of currency to say, this is an impossible debt to pay. This is an, an, an infinite debt. And this servant comes and he begs the master for the opportunity to pay it back. Now you and I may have missed this detail, but Jesus' audience wouldn't have. This wasn't a debt that could ever be paid back. It wasn't possible. I mean, a talent is a year's worth of wages. How are you going to pay back 10,000 of those? If his family were in debtor's prison, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren who'd be alive today 2,000 years later would still be working to pay off that debt. Because that's how debt worked in the Roman Empire. If you died with outstanding debt, your children, those Your descendants were responsible for it. And he begs for the opportunity to pay it back. To pay back something he never could have. And then we see him, after being forgiven of the debt, turning around and demanding payment from one of his fellow servants. One who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wages for a common laborer in the Roman Empire. Not insignificant, but certainly manageable. Something that could be paid back. 
And we see his lack of mercy in the way he responds to this servant. Pay me back now or I'll throw you in prison until you and your descendants can pay me back. We see how the story plays out. That the, ser- that the king calls this servant back in to call him out for this hypocrisy. For the fact that not only did the king forgive the debt and didn't make the original servant pay it back, but that the other servant didn't even give his fellow servant a chance to pay it back. I mean, he didn't even offer him the chance to work it off. Here's what we see in this story. The fact that the servant didn't have a change of heart towards his fellow servant, it reveals something to us. It means that his emotion and his sorrow were really about self-pity and self-preservation, not about repentance and contrition. He was not broken over his failures. He was broken over his consequences. And as soon as those consequences were removed from him, So did his emotions. So did his regret. Had he genuinely been broken over his failures? Had he genuinely been broken over the the broken relationship he now had with the king? Then when it was restored and the debt had been forgiven, it would have totally altered his response. He would have remained intimately aware of his past and his failures. He would have been reminded of the restored relationship and it would have caused him to desire restoration with others the servant didn't celebrate a restored relationship he celebrated that he had avoided punishment in this story it ends with this this sentence, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And on the surface, it almost seems as like we earn God's forgiveness by doling out forgiveness to others. That if we forgive others, God is obligated to forgive us. Or that if we somehow fail to offer forgiveness, that God will rip away whatever forgiveness we might have had available. But it really misses the whole point of the story, not to mention everything else that the Bible teaches about God's character and His grace and His love and His forgiveness. The reality is that the the forgiveness was given to this individual before they did anything because they were incapable. It was a debt that they had no hope of paying. The king didn't offer conditional forgiveness. What we see in the story is not that It's supposed to be a feel-good story about a man who receives forgiveness and then runs around freely doling out grace and love to others. It's about someone who should have experienced a a renewed relationship with his king by no work of his own and was then utterly changed by it. That's the point. That the forgiveness of our king should change us. That when we celebrate, we don't celebrate the removal of a debt. We celebrate a renewed, restored relationship. At the end, the king orders this servant to be put in a prison. But we know from the story and from real life that this 
This servant was already in a prison. They were in a personal prison. The king just made it official and physical. Because when we carry around that weight, that weight of having a debt we know we owe that we can't pay, or when we walk around carrying anger and resentment towards others who owe us, it puts us in a prison. In this series, The Gifts of Christmas, we're talking about the gifts that God gives to us, no doubt. But in it, we're also talking about the gifts that we give to others. Look at what other writers in the New Testament will say about forgiveness. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness is a gift that we celebrate at Christmas that God gives through His Son who came to die so that you and I could be forgiven. But forgiveness is also a gift that we're called to give others. Because of the life, heart-transforming grace and forgiveness we've experienced, that we want to restore relationships with others. Christmas is a time for giving. It's a time of forgiveness. And it's also a time to give forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for I thank you for this season. The season that we have to reflect on you coming as the greatest gift we could ever we could ever receive, the greatest gift this world has ever known, and you came to forgive. You came to give your life as a ransom for many. You came to pour your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Not because we deserve it, but because of your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, would you speak that truth into our hearts this morning? I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. Um, As we think and we reflect... Earlier when we read in the Old Testament, we read about how God both offers forgiveness and yet also will not overlook the guilty. In Jesus, God punishes the guilty because He took on our sin. And in through that, He offers forgiveness. This morning we're going to respond. We'll have a time for singing. Have a time for prayer. And we're going to have a time for communion. At the back at our communion table is the bread and the cup. It's the cup that represents the cup Jesus shared with His disciples in that final supper. 
where he said, this is my blood that's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. We take the bread, his broken body. We take the cup, his poured blood to remind us of what he's done for us, how he offers the gift of forgiveness to you and I. And as we do it, just as Jesus prayed or taught in Mark 11, that whenever we're standing and praying, that we are to forgive. That a part of having a renewed, restored relationship with Jesus is that we restore relationships with others. And so as a part of your response this morning, in addition to celebrating the forgiveness that God offers through His Son, Jesus, would you search your heart for places that you need to forgive others? Lord, would you be honored by the way in which we respond to you this morning? Thank you for who you are and all that you do. Would you remind us of the great cost that forgiveness was to you? That we would celebrate your forgiveness and that we would be people who would extend it to others. We love you and praise in your name.